I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, which is, of course, roughly speaking, in the, in the middle of the Bible. And uh, we're looking uh, this evening, the next, in our Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 132. And uh, we're looking at this series, uh, we've called it uh, Songs uh, uh, Journey, uh, what have we called it? A Journey to God, there we go. I knew we called it something. So, anyway. Um, and I hope that this uh, passage will be an encouragement to you. I know that the whole series has been an encouragement to me, and so we've been looking at it together. And um, so let's bow our heads and pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand your Word, to uh, receive it, and to be transformed uh, by it for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 132. Uh, I entitled the sermon that we'll be looking at from it, uh, when you, What to Do When You Think God's Plans Might Fail. What to do when you think God's plans might fail. Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Um, You might have been forgiven for thinking that this psalm is a song of what, to coin a phrase, you might call irrational exuberance. Uh, It seems very excited about the triumph of David and Zion and the temple. It seems to feel that victory will last forever and is as certain as God's oath. 
She's so excited uh, does the psalm come across that some of the structure of the psalm portrays a sort of spirit, as I say, of irrational exuberance. There's almost a feeling of a carnival or, to use economic terms, a financial bubble. Uh, The structure has been described by some commentators as four sections of ten lines, each with the name of David. That's one way of looking at it. Or two halves to the psalm, first a prayer and then an answer. That's another commentator's theory. But in some ways, the most startling aspect of the psalm is that in between these, uh, this structure, the words themselves, and when we look at the psalms, of course, they're poetry, and it's not just the structure of poetry, it's the, the emotional resonance of the words, as important as the structure is. But the, the words themselves, to me anyway, sort of betray a, a jumble of emotional, certainly confidence, maybe even overconfidence, like irrational exuberance. Uh, for instance, you pick up snatches of well-known phrases from Israel's history. Uh, the sort of catchphrases and popular tunes, perhaps, that everyone would have known and, uh, and sung a bit like they might do at the, uh, uh, when the Bulls are playing at the United Center or something, a song well-known, or when the, uh, the Cubs are playing. So, for instance, we have, Arise, O Lord. Well, that was a phrase that was first said by Moses when God's people wandered in the desert at the start of every day. It's a well-known catchphrase. So when we hear it, we should have all that history in our minds. They would have done. Arise, O Lord. Um, I don't know what well-known song they sing at the Bulls in the United Center. Frankly, I have no idea, but I'm sure there is one. Um, And there, there certainly is when you play baseball, isn't there? What do they sing? Take me out to the ball game or ballpark or something. Anyway. Arise, O Lord would have been a well-known song, catchphrase. Um, It's first said by Moses, as I I mentioned, when God's people wandered in the desert at the start of every day. But then it was picked up again by Solomon in his uh, public prayer at the inauguration of the temple. And, of course, Solomon picked it up deliberately, referencing Moses. Um, It's the saying may be unfamiliar to us, but for them it would have been as well known as shouting, defense, defense at the Bulls game. Arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord. Uh, Similarly, throughout the psalm, there are well-known popular heroes that make their way into this thrilling crowd pleaser for Israel's sporting overconfidence of victory. Uh, David, of course. As as I mentioned, he occurs four times in the psalm, uh, once for each of the four sections. He was as well known as Michael Jordan or Babe Ruth or uh, some other sporting hero uh, for some at the time. David, David, they shout. He's the MVP of the Israelite nation. Um, Jacob makes an appearance too, uh, an even older hero, of course, than David. Uh, Jacob had a different feeling to David in Israelite history. He was a sort of macho hero for his refusal to take no for an answer from God. 
and struggling with God as with man until he got a blessing. Jacob is kind of like the tough guy. Now, Jacob's the biblical hero of the person who's sure that he's going to win. An irrational exuberance, perhaps. Then there is the ark, of course, A-R-K, in English. No single token meant more to Israel than the ark. The ark of the covenant with two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments written with the very finger of God placed there by Moses. The ark that was lost to the Philistines briefly then returned and made its home in the woods of Kiriath-Jerim, the location that the enigmatic words of uh, verse 6 are almost certainly referring to. Uh, The shorthand familiarity, uh, again, betrays the well-known cadence of many of these terms. You don't need to say Kiriath-Jerim, you can call it by its nickname. It's uh, It's not New York City, it's the Big Apple. It's not Chicago, it's the windy, windy city. It's just jar. And everyone knows you're referring to where the ark was for a while, Kirith Durham. Jar. Uh, this is re- referencing a failure that became a victory, a sort of defeat of the curse of the babe for the Israelites, perhaps, using sporting terms. They had lost the ark, then they'd returned it. Then it was David who brought it back to Zion. They've regained the Stanley Cup. And they're cheering with excitement all the way through this song. And it reaches a crescendo with what some might think was a poetic license of this victory going on forever and ever. With David on their side, they'll never lose. Zion, the city of Zion, will always be established. There will always be someone on that throne. He'll have a horn of strength. Of course, that phrase horn from First uh, and Second Samuel references David. A lamp of wisdom, a crown of glory. There will always, uh, always be the winner on the podium, number one on the podium. They will always get the gold medal at the Olympic Games. Really? Irrational exuberance, as I say. Even some of the ancient singers, it must have felt a little bit of irrational exuberance because this psalm, of course, was not only sung when they went up to the temple in their summer feast exuberance to find the temple in all its ancient glory. Almost certainly it was repeated when they returned from exile to the city of David and found the temple in ruins. And yet they sing. What do you do when you think God's plans might fail? Or have failed? Well, according to Psalm 132... A good place to start is to think about David. I've divided the rest of the sermon into three bits. As I say, there are different ways of structuring the psalm, but this is the way I've done it. 
First, what David said to God. Second, what God said to David. And then third, what will happen as a result. First, what David said to God, verses 1 to 9. And in these uh, first nine verses, we learn what are the virtues and the vices of inappropriately located confidence or this irrational exuberance. There is zeal here, here, but it is a zeal without full knowledge. So on the positive side, David stands as a model of costly and committed devotion to the cause of God. There's much that is positive about David. Um, We're told he will not allow any sleep to his eyes. He's very committed. Uh, He's made a promise, and he's going to keep it. He will not go home. Uh, He's a bit like a very committed incoming senator who brings his sleeping bag with him to the office. He will not allow any sleep to his eyes. He's going to get the job done. He's going to sleep under the desk until task accomplished. He's that kind of person. He's committed. He is determined. And of course, this is a great virtue. Uh, there are hardships that he endured. Uh, that word hardship, most scholars seem to agree, refers not to the physical hardships that David endured as, as he served God, but his emotional hardships. Uh, we might say, using messianic language, which of course is appropriate when we think of David retrospectively, he denied himself, took up his cross, and followed God. There were hardships. It's, all this is good. He stands as a model for us this evening. And a challenge. Are we half-hearted in our devotion? Uh, perhaps that's why we're not seeing more of God's plans come about in our lives. Maybe we're just going through the motions. I, I think most people who come to the evening service at College Church are pretty committed by virtue of being here. But still, it's worth checking, isn't it? Are we focusing on building our houses or the Lord's house? Well, so part of the first uh, part of this psalm is saying be more like David, committed and enduring hardships and denying yourself and taking up your cross and following God. Uh, But it's doing more than that. For though this enviable commitment and devotional is modeled for us, there is a tinge of overkill, a, a bit too much. I think, should David have sworn an oath? We are told to be careful before we make any oath before God. And then when you think about the backstory here to this part of the psalm, then you quickly begin to realize there's a degree of not just confidence, but irrational exuberance or inappropriately located confidence. David said to God, I'm going to build you a house. But God said to David, not yet, and not you. Of course, we can read about that story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Even Nathan the prophet thought David had a good idea when he determined to build a temple, but God said no. And you get the sense of the gathering excitement from God's people about the idea of this coming temple in verse um, uh, verse 6. Probably verse 6 is referring to the region where the ark was kept before David brought it back to Jerusalem. And when they heard about 
what they heard about there, it seems to me, was not the ark, as many think when they study this, because they knew about the ark, because the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim, or Jar, as the area was known for short. What they heard about was that David was going to build a temple. They heard about his vow. That, I think, is the it that's referred to there, as the ark hasn't yet been mentioned. In other words, they're thrilled they're going to go to his dwelling place, the dwellings, plural in the original, and worship at his footstool, knowing that even a temple, of course, cannot really contain God. So they're excited that they're going to say, Arise, O Lord, just like the people did under Moses when they traveled in the desert. But now, at last, O oh joy, the ark will have a proper resting place. And yet, as verse 9 hints, that resting place was actually built by Solomon, David's son. And that part of the psalm, interesting enough, is a quotation from Solomon's prayer at the consecration of the temple. So it's a mixture here, isn't it? It's possible to have zeal without uh, appropriately located knowledge. And many Christians have fallen into this trap down through the years, haven't they? And, and many religious people have, erroneously predicting the end of the world without, if you don't read your Bible carefully, know that Jesus said that no one knows when the world will end, not even himself, and not only the Father. Or uh, some Christians today who think that God has promised you wealth if you're faithful. But then you need to read the story of the rich young ruler. It can be actually a threat to your faith when bad things happen to God's people if you do not realize that God's dwelling place for his people is in the end heaven, not here on earth, the new creation not the fallen creation. So this first section, what David uh, said to God, yes, have zeal, but make sure it's zeal with knowledge. Otherwise, it may be inappropriately located confidence. But then second, verses 10 to 12, what God said to David. And what we learn here is the value of appropriately located confidence. Uh, verses 10 to 12, for the sake of, of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The psalmist is still asking God to consider David, but now asked to consider David, but now it is on the basis of what God said to David rather than what David said to God. So he says, for the sake of David, which is similar to verse 1, remember David, but whereas in verse 1, it was David's performance and David's vow that was in focus, now it is God's anointed one and God's oath. So the psalmist's confidence now appropriately located in God's word is certain and sure that God will not turn away. Do not turn away, he says, verse 10. And then he is sure that God will not turn back from his commitment, verse 11, because of his covenant oath. So I think this is teaching us to make sure that our confidence is located in God's word. 
It's not telling us not to have confidence. It's telling us to make sure that that zeal is based upon knowledge. It's a good thing to commit to serve God wholeheartedly. Get up early, stay up late, uh, work hard uh, for God. Uh, But make sure your zeal is appropriately located in, uh, in God's word. David was not wrong to want to serve God. He was not wrong to want to build a temple for God. But he needed to have a bigger picture of where that zeal of his would be fulfilled. His devotion to build a temple would find fruition and not just Solomon using David's resources that David has stockpiled to build a massive, impressive temple. But his zeal to build a temple would lead to the anointed one, the son of David's, who would sit on his throne forever and ever. In fact, so important is our part to play in God's plan that shockingly for some theologians, in verse 12, the Bible says, If your sons keep my covenant... And the statues I teach them, then their son shall sit on your throne. There's a condition there, isn't there? While God's eternal plan cannot be thwarted by our moral failures, it is inappropriately located confidence to think I can do whatever I like and still receive the blessing of the covenant. God's plan was fulfilled despite the moral failures of some of David's physical descendants and despite the moral failures of David himself. Yet those who do not keep his statutes, uh, did not keep his statutes, in the end did not sit on his throne. It's all by grace, through faith alone, yet that faith, if true faith, will lead to obedience. And if I live in a way that is not keeping the statutes then it shows I've not received grace, which should drive him back to grace. That I might be empowered to follow him, broken and inadequately as all even saved sinners find they do in this world. And if I'm not living obediently, what I need to do is make sure my confidence is appropriately located. Not in my own power or my own religious commitments, but in the word of God and the gospel. I need to put my trust in the son of David, the anointed one, who reigns forever and ever, who does reign forever, not in the temple. Not in David, literally. But in the eternal son of David, the eternal throne. To put your trust in this covenant promise is a bit like getting on a train, for instance. Um, You go on a train to go downtown And if you're not following the covenant teaching, you're not really getting on the train at all. It's inappropriately located confidence to think you will get downtown by train if you do not get on the train. But when you get on the train, there is still more to come. As each station goes by, you're waiting for the final destination. The covenant to Abraham, the covenant to David, the covenant to David's son. And this psalmist at his stage of salvation history was trusting that God's covenant promise would in the future come about as he traveled on that covenant train, to use that metaphor. Now, of course, we know how it did come about. Jesus, of course, is frequently called the son of David. There are at least 58 New Testament-specific references to 
David. Jesus is the Messiah, that is the anointed one. He is the king in David's line. And so Christians do not pray, remember David, without thinking that David and the covenant given to him takes us to David's greatest son. We do not pray for the sake of your servant David without thinking that is fulfilled in the servant who came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, of course, we have a massive advantage over the psalmist in that we know how this story is fulfilled, the final destination of the covenant in Jesus. And yet, we too look ahead. So as we consider the last section of this psalm uh, from verses 13 to 18, it's obvious that even as we interpret the language here through its covenant fulfillment in Jesus, not every aspect of this description do we now experience. When we're tempted to think that God's plans might have failed, we can check whether our confidence is appropriately or inappropriately located What does God promise in his word? Am I putting my trust in Jesus' reign, the progress of the gospel uh, of Jesus Christ? Or am I putting my trust in a happy life and a comfortable house and health? Am I following God with utmost zeal, even to the extent of feeling like I have a little bit of sleep deprivation going on, as David did? But is that zeal the sort of zeal that is then with knowledge, putting my trust in God and his word? We can do that, make sure our confidence is appropriately located in God's word and not our own ideas of human flourishing. But as we look at this last part of the psalm, as I say from verses 13 to 18, we realize that when we think about David, we need to not only think about what David said to God, which has a tinge of inappropriately located confidence. He didn't build a temple. And not only about what God said to David, which of course is appropriately located confidence in God's declared word. uh, But also third, what will happen as a result in the end. Now these last few verses I find uh, quite um, evocative. Uh, But it seems to me that they have different reference points, no doubt, of flourishing for God's people. But they're in the end a picture of a reality that is not yet ours. Uh, There is such abundance here. Uh, We're told there are no poor. Uh, There's endless joy and excitement. And college church is pretty good, but I'm not sure we have endless joy and excitement. Maybe we do, I don't know. And of course it doesn't say here these words... Uh, in these verses, it doesn't say the word heaven, and it doesn't talk about Jesus' second coming explicitly, and it doesn't say the new creation. But to me, they do more than um, literally describe it. There's a longing for it. To me, this feels like a man in a desert who is thirsty and longing not someone sitting on his deck with a cool iced drink at his elbow. There's a thirst. But the power of this thirst 
then stirs up a similar longing in all of us. We long for abundant provisions. We long for there to be no more poor. We long for shouts of joy endlessly. We long for heaven. I think it's been my experience that at some level every Christian does. Of course, in the New Testament, uh, reaching the final destination of that train, that covenant train, uh, downtown with Jesus. And that's where we are now. But even in the New Testament era, era, uh, we have far more to say about, and in that New Testament era, of course, we have far more to say about heaven than the Old Testament authors. Um, we know much more about it now. We can talk of the new heaven, the new earth. We can talk of the, the second coming of Jesus. I love the phrase, the home of righteousness. It's one of my favorite phrases for heaven, the home of righteousness. But even our most powerful descriptions, and I'm working through the book of Revelation at the moment, once more in my quiet times, trying to figure out whether I've interpreted it right with the ambition one day of teaching from it, which I probably will not do, uh, because I think it's a dangerous thing to... I've preached many times on chapters 2 to 3, because that's easy. But once you get past chapter 4, you're in... As they say in England, you're on a sticky wicket. But anyway, it's a difficult thing to do, right? But even reading for Revelation and, and the language that the book of Revelation gives us, not only of the trauma of the, the attacks on God's people by his, by his enemies, but of the new heaven, the new earth, and the bride, and the city of God, and all that, even our most powerful descriptions are evocative, aren't they? They're not finally definitive. And this psalm is about David and thinking about David. And it's saying, when you wonder whether God's plans have failed, think of David. Think particularly of his good desire to build a temple, which he never did. But was fulfilled in ways he had not imagined, finally, or fully imagined. And through that desire, uh, though at one level inappropriately located, you are not to build me a temple, was revealed to him a promise of a far greater fulfillment than anyone would have dreamed, great David's greatest son, the eternal throne of the anointed one. Even though he felt like his plans perhaps had failed, there was a final fulfillment far greater. And then at the end here, it takes us beyond even all that to not just the train arriving downtown, but to when we get out and explore the city of God, the dwelling of God. Even our best descriptions are as evocative as they are definitive. Where will God dwell? Where is this dwelling? It was symbolically in a temple. 
It is genuinely in the church, the body of Christ. It is fully in the new heaven, the new earth, whereas the book of Revelation puts it, picking up on this language of dwellings. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He will dwell with his people. And it evokes longing, doesn't it? A place with no enemies, no poor, an abundance of provision. Most of all, the very presence of God himself. And how will this all come about? This abundance which we all so long and which guarantees us that God's plans never fail. Right at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. In other words, when you think God's plans might fail, try thinking about David. Think about what he said to God. And yes, let that devotion be yours. But make sure the zeal is zeal with knowledge. That it is appropriately located in God's word and what he has really and truly promised for you as a Christian. Therefore be a student of God's word so you can know what God has promised. But go further than that. Follow the trajectory of David And look to the far shore, the distant horizon, the city of God, the dwelling place, the dwelling of God with his people. Uh, Perhaps then you you may be thinking, uh, Pastor, are you saying that when I fear God's plans might fail, the answer is just remember that everything will come all right in heaven? And maybe I am. Or at least, I'm saying, remember David. Because that will take you to Jesus. And that will take you to the church. And in the church, you'll find a community of joy now. And deep longing for the hereafter forever. In other words, you'll be on the train, the covenant train. And your confidence will be located in what God has promised, what he has promised for you. Not an irrational exuberance, but biblical exuberance based upon the sure and certain covenant plan of God. Well, let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for this psalm, we thank you for this, this series, and we pray, Lord, that when we do think that our human plans might have failed, we'll remember David, who had one set of ideas, and 
found out it wasn't quite what you had in mind. And yet you used that zeal and you promised him something far greater. But even more than that, Lord, I pray that you'd remind us of how your covenant plan through David and fulfilled in Jesus was fulfilled despite their failures, not as an excuse for us to sin or be lazy, uh, but to give us confidence that with all our frailty and obvious humanity and in this short life that you've given each of us and with our limited wisdom as to what the right thing is to do at any particular moment, that you have a pretty good track record of bringing it all together under your covenant plan, fulfilled in Jesus, for an eternal joy. And so at the end of this day, Lord, we pray that we might rest in that confidence even when we think our plans might fail or have failed, knowing that your plan has not, will not, cannot. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.